So assessment and diagnosis. What does it mean to assess something? I'm going to assess your performance in this class, right? Measure it against some standard, maybe, some average. Find out if something is outside the average, yeah. Um, but I'm not going to diagnose your performance in this class, am I? So how does assessment differ from diagnosis? Good. Good. One of the things that differs uh, assessment from diagnosis is um, assessment tends to be uh, broader is a good word for it, um, less specific maybe, uh, but still ga captures the essence of it. Uh, I'm not very comfortable with the assessment instruments that I have to assess your performance in this class. They're very crude. You know, I give you this multiple choice, fill in the blank, essay exam, and that's supposed to measure your knowledge. It's like, come on. <laughs> um, and so, um, so assessment, we tend to think of assessments as being less um, specific or, or maybe less uh, or cruder or less um, precise. So diagnosis, what's up with that? When you go to the doctor, um, he doesn't, uh, he, he may do some assessments of your health in general, but if you have a specific problem, he's gonna do a diagnosis. So how does that differ? Okay, so in some ways, assessment, gathering the data that's associated with an assessment, may be an aid for a diagnosis, which is going to look at the specific kinds of um, symptoms, in this case, that you have. Yeah, yeah. so I think that's a pretty, I think that's a pretty good way to look at uh, these two things and how they're similar or not. Um, so first of all, uh, if we're going to assess or diagnose behavior that's abnormal, what are we going to use as the criteria for knowing if something is abnormal? Well, um, in your textbook, it really uses three different uh, criteria. Deviance, how far the behavior deviates from the norm. Um, discomfort, how uncomfortable the behavior is for the individual or maybe even for those that are close to the individual. And uh, dysfunction, how much does the behavior interfere or impair uh, the individual uh, going through life and being functional as we call it. Now, uh, remember that um, here's, one, here's one of the deals with dysfunction and with functionality. Um, I put the word adaptiveness on the board. That's one of the real fundamental characteristics of what it is to be a biological organism or, or even what it is to be human. We adapt uh, our behavior to fit the situation, and we call that um, dynamic uh, behavior, right? To be dynamic is to be able to adapt and change in response to what's going on around you. And what we'll see in these behaviors that we study um, is oftentimes people's behavior doesn't change appropriately for the given social situation. 
So what's going to happen is their behavior is going to be very disturbing to other people as a result. So adaptiveness and dysfunction are pretty closely tied. This has to do with, you know, can you do, uh, can you engage in your occupational, social, or maybe educational activities, right? Is the, is the disorder impairing your ability to function in those environments? And if it is, and it's uncomfortable, and it's deviant, then we start talking about it as being an abnormal behavior, or maybe a psychological disorder. Um, so, the question is, in terms of assessment, how do we measure uh, these characteristics of behavior? How do we find ways to quantify or even qualitatively describe or measure these behaviors? And that's going to be um, a little bit of the challenge of assessment. And I'll show you a little bit of some of the ways that we do this. And hopefully, I think we'll have time, we'll do um, a little bit of group work around some of this stuff too. Um, so assessment. Every day you walk around assessing people and things around you, right? You observe things, you see whether or not they fit into their environment. Is there something unusual here? Maybe is there something threatening in the environment? So you're always constantly scanning um, the environment for things that might be a problem or things that you need to pay attention to. And that allows you to adapt and be adaptive in your responses to a changing dynamic environment, right? So we're all doing assessment all the time in our own lives, um, but how is it that we do that? That's not a rhetorical question in this case. Sometimes I ask rhetorical questions, but this one isn't, yeah? So we look around, yeah. We see what's going on around us. So we look at things in response to how they fit in, how they um, relate to what we're used to or what the social environment um, is. Uh, what's that? Or how others are responding to you, sure. And that's giving you information about your behavior, right? And, of course, we do the same thing with other people. We gather information from them. We ask them, how are you doing? Are you okay? Um, you look a little bit sad or you look a little bit tired. Are you okay? Right. Yeah. Um, sure. So if maybe if we don't have sort of a social reference um, point, um, we have to rely on our own subjective uh, feelings. Some of that information we gather can be um, not so qualitative or not so quantitative, but more subjective experience. Sure, sure. And from that information and those observations, we're going to find some way to draw a conclusion about whether, gee, is this an abnormal behavior? Is this uh, something we need to pay attention to? Um, now, I'll just run through these three categories uh, fairly briefly because it's pretty straightforward stuff. When we talk about observation, we're talking about um, a couple of different ways that we can observe people's behavior. First of all, we can do what's called naturalistic observation. Basically, um, going to some situation and observing how an individual or a group of people observe, uh, behaves uh, in that natural environment. We try to remove ourselves from it, right? We try not to be part of that interaction. We, we're just trying to be observers. So we tend to try to blend into the background and um, not, uh, you know, not try to affect the behavior that we're observing. 
But um, in a lot of cases, this is much more useful uh, because some behaviors won't emerge in this context, a, a sort of controlled laboratory environment where um, that's much better for research, for example, where we can control a lot of other extraneous variables that might not be able to be controlled in a natural environment. Um, and so we can see how behavior is affected by changes in the environment, right? Um, so for, uh, for clinical work, this is probably more useful, observing how someone is in their natural environment. For research, um, we prefer uh, lab uh, environments where we can control things much better, right? So uh, what kinds of information? Well, um, one way to find out what's going on with someone is to talk to them. Basically say, hey, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Um, have you been feeling sad this week? Uh, have you um, had trouble sleeping? Um, have you, what's your eating pattern like? Um, you know, are you feeling worthwhile? You know, are you feeling like you're productive? Um, so when we talk about interviews, you, uh, your book will differentiate between structured interviews and unstructured interviews. Basically, it's pretty simple. A list of questions ahead of time. Um, the questions emerge through the course of the interview. So um, the unstructured interview has some advantages where it can reveal things that we might not have been looking for previously. You know, we can, as we go along, kind of adapt our questions to try to see, uh, to try to probe maybe more deeply into one particular part. Whereas in structured interviews, um, uh, the questions tend to be set out ahead of time. Now, this is valuable because it maintains consistency between individuals, but this is valuable because it uh, illustrates more about the individual experience, right? So they both have value. Again, unstructured interviews may be more useful in a clinical situation where you're trying to find out what's going on with someone, whereas structured may be more useful in a research environment. But uh, they're both useful in both situations. So we can do testing, or we can give people questionnaires. And I might give you a questionnaire like this. Nope, I'm not going to give you a questionnaire like that. I might give you um, some sort of a screening test. This is, uh, this handout I'm giving you has to do with uh, alcohol use screening. Um, it uses a screening instrument called the audit. Alcohol use, uh, something, something, something. Disorders identification test. Okay, very good. Um, and you'll see the actual questionnaire uh, on page four. Um, please circle the answer that's correct for you. So how often do you have a drink containing alcohol? How many drinks containing alcohol do you have in a typical day? How many during the last year? How often during the last year? Have you failed to do what was normally expected? Um, have you needed a drink in the morning? Um, feelings of guilt or remorse? So it's basically a sort of self-report questionnaire that gathers information about someone's experience. Again, in a very structured kind of way, right? Another alternative to that might be to actually have them write out a narrative of their experience. And again, that may be more useful in a lot of ways. So these self-report measures are real uh, useful. The other one I should talk about is the MMPI, uh, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. And um, the MMPI was originally developed after uh, World War I and the Beginning, and toward the beginning of World War II, when it became clear in World War I, when we drafted all these people to go to war, uh, some of them weren't psychologically fit to go to war. 
And you don't want someone who's psychotic on the battlefield because when you give them a weapon, you don't know where they're going to point it, right? You know, you might become the enemy at any moment. So um, there needed to be a way to sort of screen out mass, you know, use this on a massive scale, millions of men who are going to be going to, men in that time, who are going to be going to war. And you have to screen out the people who are going to have uh, psychological problems. So the MMPI was developed as a way to do that. It's an extensive questionnaire. It's got all kinds of checks and balances in it so that you can't lie on it and you know make yourself look crazy or make yourself not look crazy, so on and so forth. Um, the MMPI-2 was a revision of the MMPI um, that uh, because after the war, corporations wanted to use this to try to figure out who they should hire. And so they started using the MMPI. But the problem with the MMPI was it really had a lot of it was about psychopathy, you know, identifying psychopathic individuals. And so the MMPI-2 revision added um, some other scales that were much more useful for general use in the population. So um, that's an interesting uh, questionnaire. And then we talk about the projective tests. So the projective tests were all about getting at stuff that people weren't going to talk about, right? Freud's uh, the psychoanalytic perspective is all about the um, unconscious motives, the unconscious uh, uh, determinants of behavior. So what they would use are these relatively um, ambiguous uh, images. And uh, so these are actual Rorschach cards. Um, I'll pass one of these around for you. Um, what they did with these was, you know, basically they would hold it up and there's a correct orientation. This is the correct orientation for this card. And you were to describe, um, you know, what you saw in the image. And depending on how you described what you saw in the image, that told me something about your um, psychopathy and your um, psychopathic uh, behavior. You can pass that around too. Um, so again, this is going to try to um, get at uh, unconscious feelings, unconscious experiences, things people don't want to talk about. Now, there's a whole scoring system and a you know relatively complex um, list of uh, possible symbols that could be seen and what they mean. And it, you know this is an attempt to make it all very sort of scientific and quantitative. But ultimately, it's very subjective on the basis of um, the individual who's using it. So these uh, methods tended to fall out of favor along with the psychodynamic approach itself. This is called the thematic apperception test. And basically, what the thematic apperception test was is they would give you a picture with an image and you were to make up a story about that image, right? Um, and again, it's all free form, and it's intended to get at your unconscious experience rather than your sort of conscious um, state. And so there's this one. There's a kid with a violin. He looks real sad. Here's one of a woman who's obviously crying. Um, this little boy's all alone. And, you know, there's um, a whole series of these. And again, based on what the content and themes in the uh, stories uh, de determined what the uh, disorder was that the person had. Um, oh, the thematic apperception test, again, it's... Um, uh, very subjective and um, not particularly, um, uh, you know, it doesn't show a high degree of reliability between people who administer it. So uh, it's generally um, not used that much uh, at this point, along with the, uh, with the Rorschach. Here's some examples of uh, 
it says this is uh, how it's one of the things they want you to interpret is forces of the hero's environment. You know, so they have these like you know archetypal figures like the hero, and it says the interpreter should observe the details as well as the general nature of the situations, especially the human natures situations which confront the heroes. Here again, he should be set to underscore uniqueness, intensity, and frequency, and to record the significant absence of certain common elements. Special note should be taken of physical objects and human objects, other characters, which are not shown in the pictures, but invented by the imagination uh, of the storyteller. Um, so, again, this is, um, you know, very, very subjective in terms of its interpretation. So. Uh, it's difficult to use, but um, it's going to be very illustrative of someone's inner experience, something that may not be able to be um, gotten at by uh, self-report measures. But what people are typically tend to use instead of these now is the um, interview method um, to try to find out about people's experience as opposed to trying to get at the, you know, sort of the unconscious. Um, so as I said, one of the problems of these projective tests is um, whether or not they're very standardized and whether the norms um, flow across the population. Standardization says um, uh, that a test has uh, established reliability and validity. Validity meaning it measures what I think I measure. Uh, reliability meaning if I give this test to the same person, you know, numerous times over the course of a year, uh, am I going to get the same results or do I get different results? Or uh, in the term, in terms of uh, interpretation, can I have um, several? Can I have several different practitioners interpret? the person's story on the thematic apperception test and come up with the same results all the time. Um, and so reliability and validity are real important and things we look for. And then norms, is it normed against the general population? And how frequently do you re-norm something? For example, those of you who are just out of high school uh, or recently out of high school um, know that the, may know that the Scholastic Aptitude Test, the SAT, was renormed several years ago um, because, you know, the educational system is changing. So it has to be renormed. It has to be given out to the population, find out what the average is, find out what the standard deviation is, so that you can know where someone fits in that um, distribution. Uh, back to intro psych. This is what's called a normal curve. Some of you know of it as a bell curve. Um, the mean is the average. And then sixty-eight percent are gonna fall between one standard deviation below the mean and one standard deviation above the mean. So if someone's score shows them as being outside this area, then they're outside the average, you know, the, the major average. And then you've got second deviation here and like the third deviation here. And each of these percentages increases, 34%. I think this is 12 and a half, and this is like um, 2.5 or something. Does that equal 50? 14, 44, almost, something like that. So um, if someone falls out here between the second and third deviation, um, they're very abnormal, right? because only 2.5% people will fall in that group. And this is out here, it's like 0.5 or something like that, okay? Same thing on the other side of the mean. 
So, um, so that gives us a sense of where someone sits in terms of the average of the population or the most of the population. So the, uh, the IQ test, for example, is normed this way. The IQ test has a mean of 100 and a standard deviation of 15. So between uh, 85 and 115, 68% of the people who take the IQ test will fall between those two numbers. So it tells you, are you really, really smart, or are you really, really not smart? Uh, we talked about validity and reliability. And then, um, in addition to these questionnaires, interviews, projective tests, we've also got um, now uh, quite good tests of neurological function. So is there some biological abnormality that's causing a dysfunction in behavior? And how can we test for that? Well, the um, MRI, magnetic resonance imaging test, is done primarily to look at structure of the brain. Are there some structural abnormalities? For example, uh, we know that in people with schizophrenia, the uh, ventricles in the brain, which are the holes that contain cerebral spinal fluid inside the cortex, uh, are those ventricles, those ventricles tend to be larger in individuals with schizophrenia. Functional MRI is similar, except you're able to actually give someone a task to do and see which parts of the brain become active and inactive during that task. So maybe you give them some sort of um, you know, you expose them to some highly emotional scene and see which parts of the brain uh, become active or inactive and is there a problem in, in, uh, in brain function in that way? Are they abnormal? Because again, these are normed against other, um, against the population. So. And what do you draw for conclusions? Well, for one thing, um, you're going to have to figure out, is there a problem here, possibility? Um, one way to figure that out is to do a self-assessment, like the audit can be self-scored. We can give people a scoring key for this, and they can figure out whether they think they might have a problem. Or um, someone who's a professional may do an assessment using uh, these questionnaires. They may use interviews. They may use uh, neurologic tests projective tests. But then, once you realize that there might be a potential problem, what specifically is the problem? And so then we start getting down into the idea of diagnosis, um, pinning down specifically what's going on with someone and how that's affecting their life. It also is going to rely on differential diagnosis because um, some of these disorders are very similar, and we have to be able to differentiate them from each other somehow. Um, and all of this relies on the idea that we are currently using a medical model to describe um, mental illness. And the medical model gives us some advantages in terms of our diagnostic ability, um, uh, which I'll talk about in a second. So, um, questions on assessment stuff? Pretty straightforward. This isn't rocket science. Um, yeah, for the most part. Um, most um, uh, clin clinicians in the United States, anyway, yeah. Um, uh, well, um, you know, um, psychoanalysis uses, um, in some ways, the medical model, parts of, you know, quite a bit of the medical model, because really what the me all the medical model really talks about, I don't mean, when I say medical, I, mean, I don't mean biolo you know, like biological. Uh, I mean medical in the sense of describing, yeah, describing symptoms and syndromes, yeah. And so uh, psychodynamic practitioners still use it. Um, um, a lot of uh, what is driving the current diagnostic system is um, 
the need to uh, classify disorders for insurance company purposes. So we'll see how that plays itself out in a minute here. That would be the medical billing model, indeed. How do we get paid? Definitely. You know, you just can't get away from economics. You, if you don't have money, there's not much you can do. Um, so when I talk about the medical model, really what I'm talking about um, is um, a nosology. And a nosology is essentially um, part of medical science, which um, is specialized in classifying disorders and diseases. And so in terms of um, the psychological nosology, what we're all about is describing the syndromes that are associated with something that we call, quote unquote, bipolar disorder. You know, we're just putting a label, bipolar disorder, on a set of symptoms. You know, otherwise, it, you know, it, there's no other, you know, it doesn't exist outside of our labeling of it as bipolar disorder. It's just, you know, individual symptoms that when we see them clumped together, we go, oh, that looks like bipolar disorder. Um, and so the current psychological nosology in uh, North America, at least, is the DSM. And it's currently uh, the DSM-4 TR. Now, the DSM uh, hasn't existed in its current state forever. It's gone through a number of uh, revisions. Um, and each revision takes into account changes that are happening um, out there in the population, right? Uh, it's not a static diagnostic system. It changes in response to, bless you, what kinds of disorders are emerging. Bless you again. Because uh, disorders emerge at higher rates through uh, history at different times. Plus, what we consider abnormal or pathological changes over time. For example, uh, in the DSM-3, uh, I'm sorry, the DSM-3 eliminated the um, classification of homosexuality as an abnormal behavior uh, or, or a psychopathy. Um, and so, uh, you know, social and cultural changes are going to drive um, changes in the DSM as well as uh, how, um, how the symptoms emerge in the culture. So here's, what's that? Which would that be? To make that realization. Is that not develop or, or generate some realizations about the scope and limits of Um So the question is, um, how did the um, reclassification of uh, homosexuality specifically out of the out of the psychopathology, how did that affect the um, interpretation of diagnostics? The whole collection of people who were looking to interpret. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah. I mean, the American Psychiatric Association is a collection of psychiatrists, and um, that particular issue was quite um, contentious. And there, you know, there was, um, you know, there was a lot of shouting and um, disagreement at the conventions meetings when they were talking about it. Um, and uh, generally, it that's it's that kind of discussion and that kind of um, you know rumination, that kind of um, considered experience that generates these changes. You know, it's not sort of willy-nilly that. Uh, this is, you know, five people that get together and decide um, that there's a new disorder or there isn't a disorder anymore. It's the whole association, so it's um, it's 
quite complicated, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, so the uh, editions, the first edition uh, came out in 1953. Um, and the first edition really didn't have much in terms of diagnostic um, criteria, in terms of diagnosing disorders. Mostly it was um, all about collecting data on the prevalence of disorders and um, giving them some sort of rough categorization. Now notice that this is in the height of the psychoanalytic, uh, psychodynamic period. So a lot of these disorders were described in terms of psychoanalytic uh, terms, conflicts, childhood conflicts, disorders that emerge as a, as a function of childhood uh, problems. Um, 68 was the next edition called the DSM-2. And um, the DSM-2, uh, essentially what happened was um, it, they gathered together all the clinicians who were doing uh, practice and they said, what is the consensus of our observations about what we see in disorders? So uh, it became a little bit more specific and it actually started to Diag, you know, add a lot more diagnostics and a lot more um, specific diagnostic uh, criteria. Um, 1980, the DSM-3 came along. Now, notice what happens in the DSM-3. Um, the DSM-3 starts to look for observable symptoms. What does that mean in terms of psychoanalysis and psychodynamic? Yeah, yeah, so the psychodynamic perspective um, relies on the idea that it's unobservable conflicts, you know, unconscious conflicts that are driving people's behaviors. And the DSM-3 says, uh, you know what, thanks, thanks for your contribution, psychoanalysis, but uh, we'll take over from here. Huge shift, yeah, because, yeah, and one of the reasons, you know, that we started to take homosexuality out was that that, you know, homosexuality was seen as a pathology in the psychodynamic perspective. That was one of Freud's main uh, things. So um, what we now started to see is that the reliance on observable symptoms in the diagnostics. We also started to see much more focus on maladaptivity or adaptiveness, right? Do Are these... Uh, are these syndromes, do they cause problems in functioning? Do they cause problems for people in adapting to their environment, being able to work in their occupational settings, that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, good question. What do you mean by observable? Um, let me give you, uh, let me throw out a few things and tell me whether you think they are observable which we'll call uh, whoops, overt behaviors or unobservable, covert behaviors. Okay, so um, eating. Does anybody agree that's observable? Yeah, I think so. Um, ticks. A tick. That's observable. Um, memory. Memory problems, you know, maybe not being able to remember. Amnesia. Yeah, we can measure it. We can measure it. Uh, and it's based on self-report. And we'll generally call that observable. Um, you know, the person could be lying. 
but we can't directly open up your skull and look inside and see what memories are there, right? So it's got limits to its observational uh, qualities. Um, cognition or thinking. Fun? Yeah, this is the very gray area. Um, cognition or thinking, we can ask people what they're thinking and they can tell us. Um, we can maybe do a functional MRI and see what kinds of brain activity is going on, but that doesn't really tell us what they're thinking. It just says that something's happening. Um, so it's kind of a little bit of a gray area, right, uh, between overt and covert. Um, uh, sexual conflicts. Not very much, you know. Um, the uh, what else can I give you for an example um, of covert behaviors? Yeah, good. Um, yeah, hearing voices. Those are not very observable. Again, we can ask self-report. We can say. Have you been hearing voices? And people can say yes. Um, so that's, you know, again, in that sort of gray area. So when we talk about observable symptoms, we're talking about things that we can either directly observe as a clinician um, or that we can measure with some sort of questionnaires, interviews, things like that. Um, and so uh, outside of that, um, these, these sorts of things disappear, yeah. Interesting. So we were always looking at signs and symptoms and anything that we were trying to, you know, to diagnose on, but okay. symptoms are something that were reported in the yeah. signs. I think that's a reasonable um, differentiation. Yeah. so much. Um, sexuality is not something that can that we can measure very easily. Um, there's all kinds, you know, um, for example, uh, heterosexual men engage in homosexual behavior. Yeah. Whatever, but again, you can't, it's very difficult to um, directly observe sexuality. Um, yeah, I think for the most part, I think that would be one of the main reasons. Um, and um, it generally doesn't cause a lot of problems in terms of danger to the self or others or um, disturbance to the self. It may disturb some other people. Uh, but uh, it's and it generally doesn't cause uh, maladaptivity problems, except in a particular cultural context, right? So in a culture that's very, uh, you know, for example, you go to Iran, and if you exhibit homosexual behavior in Iran, you know, you get your head cut off. So, uh, so I mean, within the cultural context, this is all, of course, within cultural context. Is all about. It's all about the context, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I can't. Um, 
I'd have to go back and look and see what the revisions actually were. Yeah, that's the only one I know of, actually. Um, I'm sure a lot of psychodynamic um, syndromes that might have been previously listed were removed. Um, yeah, with the shift away from psychodynamic perspective, yeah. Um, 94 uh, is the DSM-4. And what happens in the DSM-4 is it starts to include um, much more data and evidence from research on uh, psychopathology. So um, it becomes uh, less subjective, more research-based. And then 2000 is the current edition of the DSM-4. Um, the text revision really only revised uh, some of the diagnostic codes that are used. Now, uh, the next edition is probably going to be in 2011. And um, what's going to happen is they're doing a much more review of um, the massive amount of research literature that's been accumulated since uh, 94 and see how to revise the um, uh, diagnostics. So what I made for you is a copy of one chapter of the DSM-4-TR. Oh, you guys didn't get one, did you? Anybody not get one? You got one? Everybody got one? Okay. So um, this is the chapter on mood disorders. And um, so it gives an overall uh, view of the mood disorders. The major types of mood disorders on page 345. On uh, 346, um, it continues those differentiations of the types. And then what you see over here under depressive disorder, it starts under depressive disorders and it goes under bi bipolar disorders. Those are those um, diagnostic codes. Um, see 296.xx. 296.xx um, means 296 is the major diagnostic number and then XX is for various subtypes of that um, diagnostic uh, number. And those are the diagnostic codes that a um, clinician will turn into an insurance company in order to bill for your therapy. Um, page 349 has the beginning of describing each of the um, episodes and it kind of gives an overall view of the episode, quite detailed. Um, then associated kinds of uh, experiences, um, lab findings. Again, here's that integration of the research with the um, uh, with the DSM. And then what's uh, you know what's also nice is on page 353 you see specific culture, age, and gender features. For example, in um, many cultures. Depression is, symptoms are exhibited not as emotional symptoms, sadness, melancholy, withdrawal, but rather more physiological symptoms, headaches, um, body aches, things like that. Um, then uh, 354, they give the course of the disorder, how it tends to um, how it tends to emerge and how it tends to proceed. And then it starts with the differential diagnosis. So how do you differentiate, for example, um, a mood disorder from a mood disorder due to a general medical condition, right? Or a substance-induced mood disorder as opposed to a regular mood disorder. Um, 356, they always give this criteria, and this is kind of a shorthand, shortcut criteria list for these disorders. Um, and then, and notice how it says you have to have a certain number of the given symptoms present during a certain time period and that it has to represent some sort of change from previous functioning. Um, and then they give these other criteria, at least one of the symptoms is either depressed mood or loss of interest or pleasure. So very specific lists of criteria that have to be met to make these diagnoses. Um, and this is really good because it keeps people from being diagnosed with something that they don't have, hopefully. Um, I, don't, I don't intend for you to you know, memorize this chapter, 
This is mostly um, oops, this is mostly to give you an example of what one chapter from the and the DSM is about this thick. One chapter of what this looks like, um, and this is one of the thickest because uh, mood disorders are among the most prevalent of the disorders. So. Uh, there's a huge variation, yeah. What's that? No, no. So like I said, you don't have to memorize this. I just want you to know um, what it looks like, um, how it appears. Um, and I'll be giving you, for the other disorders, I'll be giving you sort of shortcut lists of symptoms that we look for rather than the entire chapter. Uh, because your book, unfortunately, doesn't include that. And I'm actually considering switching to a different book for that reason. One of the things the DSM-3 does is it makes its definitions of abnormality much more precise. Um, so it added those duration things. Remember I told you you have to have this number of occurrences over this period of time. Um, very precise descriptions of the syndromes. Um, and one of the nice things about this is it allows much better agreement between um, clinicians in court about how to interpret um, behavior. Because what will happen is you get a couple of psychodynamic clinicians in there and they're going to be talking about entirely different stuff and it's really difficult to figure out whether something uh, is a disorder in terms of uh, legal proceedings. The other thing that it started to do was this sort of flowchart diagnosis. I'll give you an example of that. Um, this is a differential diagnosis chart uh, for mood disorders. And um, this is very useful for um, uh, psychiatrists, but it's especially useful for, for example, uh, general practice doctors. Um, it's a very easy to use way to differentiate um, the disorders. So you kind of just follow it through. Does it have this feature? Does it have that feature? Yes or no? Um, how do you make your decisions? Um, it also included much more intensive um, tools for diagnostics. And um, also uh, much more uh, collection of data on the prevalence of these disorders and the prevalence of symptoms of these disorders. So the DSM-3 was, um, was really a huge, huge revision that um, made the diagnostics a lot more reliable, a lot more um, useful in a lot of ways. The revisions in the DSM-4 uh, were not all that um, were not as intensive as the uh, DSM-3 changes. The DSM-3 was the big uh, was the big revision, and again, it moved it out of the realm of psychoanalysis and more into the realm of the current um, biopsychosocial model of uh, disorders. Um, all right. Any questions on that? Move on. We're going to take a break here pretty quick. Hang in there with me. So um, the DSM-4, as I said, came along in 94. Um, and the DSM-4... TR and both of these versions um, added more culturally specific kinds of syndromes. So again, it reflects the changing demographics of the United States and North America. Um, as the United States uh, becomes a much more multicultural uh, country, 
we have to consider cultural variations in these disorders if we're going to make an adequate diagnosis. Yeah. Good question. What do they use in other places? Uh, there's what is uh, what we have now. We have uh, what we'll call alternative nosologies, um, and the main one is the ICD, the International Classification of Diseases. Now, this is not just um, a nosology for psychological disorders. It's a nosology for all disorders, all physical and psychological disorders. And it's um, compiled by the World Health Organization. So it um, is uh, much more inclusive in terms of uh, disorders from all over the world as opposed to just uh, uh, the United States and North America. That's the web address for it. Um, and I'll show you what it looks like in a second. Um, let me go there and show you what it looks like. Um, this is in its 10th revision, and so I think it's been around for quite a while. Hey, you can't see that very well, can you? Let me flip a switch. That works better. Um, so as you see, it's uh, all kinds of diseases, not just uh, psychological. It's mostly physiological diseases, uh, but there is um, a section for mental and behavioral disorders. Um, this doesn't have, um, the online version doesn't have very specific um, uh, classifications. So uh, organic, uh, mental and behavioral due to substance use disorders, schizophrenia, mood disorders, um, uh, stress and somatoform disorders. Um, I'm not sure what this one is about. Uh, personality disorders. Um, uh, mental retardation, retardation or developmental disorders, um, and um, usually occurring in childhood and adolescence. So these are very close to the classifications that occur in the DSM. Um, so it's, it's very similar, but it's going to encompass more uh, culturally specific um, disorders. I wonder. You know, um, I bet it probably really was at some point. Um, I would have to assume so. Well, let me take a screenshot of this for the podcast. Okay. Um, so let's go back to, you know. Um, okay diagnosis. So we've got the syndrome, we've got the set of symptoms and the duration of those symptoms, and once we've got that information, then we can start looking for a label to put on it. Uh, and the nice thing about having a label for the syndrome, a diagnosis, is that we have seen, you know, we've collected data in the past on what treatments were useful in those uh, disorders. So um, uh, now we can make recommendations for treatments that we think are going to be useful uh, in terms of those disorders. Um, do psychologists um, diagnose, or do or is it only psychiatrists? I know psychiatrists give medication, but can psychologists diagnose too? Yes. Like therapists? Yes. Okay. Yep. Uh, yeah, because they have to bill insurance companies too. <laughs> so is so the question is uh, is there a controversy between psychologists and psychiatrists over um, subscription privileges yeah and in fact, psychologists have been successful in at least one state, I'm not sure about any others, uh, New Mexico. Uh, psychologists do have prescription privileges, I think, for specific classes of drugs. 
uh, for treating uh, disorders. Um, really, the training is pretty much as intense in terms of psychopharmacology. In fact, uh, psychologists may have uh, more intense training in psychopharmacology than medical school students or general practice doctors who can also subscribe, uh, subscribe prescribe uh, very potent uh, psychophysiolog uh, psycho psychoactive drugs. Yeah, I'm getting tired, huh? Um, it's about 25 of, we should take a break because you guys are, have had it for a while. Um, can we come back here at, uh, just call it high noon and uh, that'll give you a chance to grab a bite to eat or something. <laughs>